be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Course podcast where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we do consider as we go along. Now today, we are looking at the 17th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 16, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 9, episode 17, or what the German regionalization team named Arbitrary Law. I'm your host, John. In episode 16, Albert, Dale, Harry, and Hawk do a slow hero walk, and Cooper decides that he needs 24 hours to finish this. Donna gets a promise ring from James, but then she leads Cooper to an alternate Mrs. Tremond, almost getting killed by Leland and Bob, finds out Maddie was killed, and when she tells hot and cold James about Maddie, he takes back his promise and leaves her crying. Catherine reveals herself to Ben, Lucy tells Dick and Andy how it's going to be, and after hearing Donna read a new diary entry of Laura's, Cooper consults with ailing spirit Mike before he sets up an impromptu meeting with the giant at the roadhouse. The memory of Laura's dream answer returns to him, the lawmen make a switcheroo arrest from Ben Horn to Leland Palmer, and Bob reveals himself while sprinklers create a metaphorical storm inside the sheriff's station, and we get confessions and the death of Leland via Tibetan spiritualism. Then, Cooper, Albert, Harry, and the Major discuss the nature of Bob, and an owl comes at us as if to say nothing's really over. Now, this episode being the absolute end of the Who Killed Laura Palmer story arc, I mean, there's a lot to talk about in this episode, and there are a lot of questions. And um, even in the context of future Twin Peaks, We've got them here. So what are the questions that I'm going to focus on this time? Is time compressed or just the plot? How do we see inversions through Twin Peaks? Is Donna allowed to leave the influence of the supernatural? How does the supernatural surface? What is the culpability between Bob and Leland? And where can the supernatural go from here? And before we look into the story itself, we're going to look into the production history to see what kind of context was being put into the show at the time. So the show was written by Mark Frost, Robert Engels, and Harley Payton, directed by Tim Hunter. Now, Twin Peaks typically plots about six to nine episodes at a time, so it leaves the story a chance to evolve as each script is written. And they don't want to come up with, you know, too many ideas beyond the story they're working on. And what that tends to mean for viewers is story arcs tend to end around the same time, too. You know, here, 
we've got the Laura arc ending, but then so does the mill plot because Catherine essentially wins and we never see the mill plot again. Um, also, there's kind of an ending to James and Donna. You know, it's like the will they, won't they? Um, you know, it's like we get the fake out of a happy ending, but then we get that, you know, it all kind of comes crashing down at the end. And then they never really do um, the couple thing quite in the same way again. And, you know, even Lucy comes to a conclusion here. You know, the end of the 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 first season, we've got Lucy, you know, finally admitting that she's pregnant. And now, instead of, you know, like, oh, what am I going to do? You know, then she decides what she's going to do. And she makes sure that she lets Dick and Andy know. So, you know, it's like all the arcs are kind of coming to a climax at the same time. And next episode is essentially an epilogue. You know, it sets up the table for the new status quo. But, um, you know, it's like after after the first part of next episode, it's like we don't even really give too much um, too much space to this stuff anymore. And, you know, part of it is because there's going to be an edict to, um, you know, make shorter storylines that viewers don't have to be mired in continuity to get to. So, you know, it kind of makes sense from a structure standpoint, but it's um it's just interesting how how Twin Peaks decided to do that. Now, about this episode in particular, um Mikey from Cooper Duper podcast, he says, you know, this is probably the best not directed by Lynch. And um he thinks it's weird how much Lynch is in this episode having nothing to do with Lynch. And um you know, that I think that's kind of tied into the fallacy that this is Frost's ending to the story arc, and episode 14 is kind of the Lynch ending. Um, but, you know, that doesn't really add up because, as I've said before, you know, um, you know, sure, uh, Tim Hunter doesn't mess with the episode or the act lengths, but, um, you know, Lynch did plot this whole thing out with Frost. I've said it before that... Um, you know, it's like, yeah, they did know the ending in September before they told Ray Wise. And um, that was part of what Lynch convinced uh, Ray Wise about. You know, it was, um, you know, he knew that the broad strokes would include a lot of things in this episode. And um, Ray Wise and Reflections, um, <clears throat> he said it like this. I didn't want to leave the cast, but when I was told that it was me, David said, Ray, it's you. It was always you. I don't know if um, I don't know if that was true in his mind the whole time, but then he went on to explain how my final moments would go and how Agent Cooper would help me back or that would help me with the transition from life to death, reading from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and I would see the white light at the end of the tunnel, and my daughter Laura would forgive me. So it seemed to me to be very redemptive. And he made it sound so good, so I guess I couldn't complain after that. And of course, there's also Tim Hunter's inclusion in that, like, he and Lynch go way back. I I forget right now if it was film school or AFI days, but um, yeah, they they were there kind of at, near the beginning of each other's careers, and um, you know, they they have the same kind of sensibilities. That's why Tim Hunter's allowed to do the Dutch angles, you know, the tilted camera, um, and um, you know, uh, his, his, when, when they would slot him to direct an episode of Twin Peaks, it was usually to either set up what Lynch is going to be doing soon or to kind of bat clean up for him. 
And uh, this is definitely one of those examples. Yeah, so Lynch was involved in the plotting. And then here's what um, some of the writers who actually wrote this episode thought. <laughs> We've got Robert Engels. He's uh, also from Reflections. Uh, he says, The series was built on Leland as much as it was on Cooper in a weird way. His performance was pretty amazing. Ray was a good sport. It's never cool when you're on a series and then you realize you're dead, but Twin Peaks people come back all the time. So I guess they told him not to worry about that. If there had been a third year, he probably would have come back. And Harley Payton, also from Reflections, he's a, you know, he always props up Mark Frost when he can. And he says, the writing, I don't know if it was David's, but that was really Mark with the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It's classic Mark Frost stuff. That was Mark and David working very, very closely before, I mean, closely together and bringing the kind of magic they could bring. And maybe for the last time on the show. I'm not really sure after that how many times they actually worked together. And, you know, part of that is because I think Lynch decided to kind of step back from, like, actual story plotting and, you know, just kind of paid attention to director's cuts after they were already done. Um, and, you know, Frost, around this time somewhere, um, he would he would leave for a month to work on pre-production for his already planned uh, Storyville project that... Um, you know, I mean, it, it was its timing coincided with with about now in Twin Peaks as far as him needing to actually focus on it for a little bit. So we'll get we'll get into where is Frost and where is Lynch in future episodes. But right here, yeah, like Harley, like Harley said, um, they were both absolutely involved in this one. And um, it's it's kind of nice to hear from him, too, that um you know, that the Tibetan Book of the Dead stuff actually was an interest of Frost as well, not just Lynch. You know, speaking of Bob being in this episode, we've got Tim Hunter talking about kind of the differences between his directing style and Lynch's. And this one's also from Reflections. Um, Tim Hunter said, Bob was an absolute sweet guy, and he wasn't terrifying at all on the stage. I think I made the mistake with Bob by trying to make him too terrifying. I've got him mugging a little bit, and that could be my fault as much as his. But then I remember seeing what David did with him when he revealed him, and it was so subtle and so scary. It just sent a chill through your spine, whereas I was trying to pump the guy up. I don't think it worked as well, and I always thought that was one of the many measures of David's genius, how he could how he could hit his stuff like that without even trying. And yet, even with that kind of possible, you know, Bob being a bit over the top here and there, you know, th this episode is not panned at all by the fans. You know, I mean, this is, you know, <laughs> there, there are so many... Um, favorite episodes lists of Twin Peaks that includes this episode. You know, oftentimes it's the only non-Lynch episode on those lists. So it worked out pretty well. As far as how it worked out at the time when it aired, it aired on December 1st. And, um, you know, there's only two episodes left before the, the holiday break in December. And um, at the time, 12.4 million viewers viewed it. Which, um, you know, it's definitely not the lowest it could get, but, you know, it's down uh, from last week's 13.3 million last episode. So we're getting back to that point where 
a million viewers a week are leaving the show. So, you know, the writing is still on the wall and, um, you know, the, the show's basically in danger by the network of, um, of getting, you know, kicked off the schedule essentially. And, um, you know, this is at, this is at the point of its creative height. So, uh, yeah. So now we've looked at the show from the point of view of, um, when it was being made. And now we're going to look at it from the point of view of David Lynch after fire walk with me after everything. And he's putting his final stamp on the show with the log lady introduction. So now the sadness comes the revelation. There is a depression after an answer is given. It was almost fun. Not knowing yet. Now we know. At least we know what we sought in the beginning, but there is still the question, why? And this question will go on and on until the final answer comes. Then the knowing is so full, there is no room for question. Okay, so the depression after an answer is given. Yeah, I mean, th this is <laughs> this is probably autobiographical. You know, it's like the one that Lynch was likely in the middle of even then at the Log Lady intros. Even, yeah, I mean, he says it kind of continued even through Lost Highway, uh, which he'll, you know, later realize that it's in the same universe as Twin Peaks which I assume means like the, um, the supernatural side of things kind of works in a similar way. And, um, yeah, I, you know, I don't want to psychoanalyze too much, but you know, this, this really hurt Lynch and, you know, I mean, we, we pretty much get why he could be depressed because he gives his mission statement, you know, even, even when we know what was sought in the beginning, there will never be an adequate answer to why. And, um, you know, it's like, that's how, how we get, you know, even today debate on, you know, the culpability uh, dimensions between how much is Leland and how much is Bob. You know, I mean, there's there's so much room, even with the answers that we asked in the beginning and, um, you know, answers leading to questions. You know, it's like I kind of feel like Lynch is leading the audience to say, you know, it's like even though we're giving you an answer, it's like it you're you're not going to get you're not going to get the final answer you know the the knowing uh the knowing being so full that there's no room for questions that knowing is going to be when you die i'm sure you know when you return to the unified field or whatever else so you know <laughs> you know it's like just because you got an answer doesn't mean you have all of them so um yeah i think lynch was trying to reclaim the narrative now we're at the point where we're going to start looking into the episode. So we're going to hear first from a few of our uh, fellow podcasters over at the Ruminations Radio Network. You know what they all say. Fantasy football is like a box of chocolates. And I know you. You love fantasy football. And you love chocolates. Well, 25 Yards Later is a fantasy football podcast with top-notch analysis, earworm music, and plenty of laughs. Each week, we dive deep into four games, putting every fantasy-relevant and occasionally fantasy-irrelevant player under a microscope. Block out all the haters with 25 Yards Later, available wherever you get your podcasts, but maybe not where you get your chocolates. 
All right, so welcome back. We are now going to start looking at the main questions for episode 16. Um, the, the first one that I have is a little bit more nuts and bolts than usual. Um, but, you know, of course, the answers lie in um, what, the, what the topics of the show are giving us today. Um, the question is, is time being compressed or just the plot? And I mean, if you look at the story... Yeah, there, there's a breakneck pace in this episode. You know, it's almost in line with how much happens in season one finale. And um, yet, at the same time, it's focused around the one big scene in the sheriff's station or that, that one big chunk of time in the sheriff's station. Um, so it, it ends kind of similar to the way episode 14 does as well. You know, in addition to being kind of like the one that Frost directed and the last one that Lynch directed, it's also paced just like a typical case of the week crime show. You know, it's like we see the victim's face at the beginning. Um, you know, Albert presents some of the crime scene evidence right away, you know, like the fox fur and the, 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 the O that was under her nail. And, you know, then we get the law enforcement going about their investigation and the criminal is apprehended and the, you know, the, the guilt of the criminal is assessed and revealed. And, um, you know, after that, then, you know, the victim is practically forgotten by the end of the episode. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's it's really interesting how much of a typical uh, crime show uh, formula is actually in this episode. Though, you know, of course, you know, it's, it's absolutely subverted because, um, you know, the suspect's known associates and haunts are in the space of the supernatural this episode. And that's where Cooper goes to investigate. So, you know... Um, even though it's the same amount of time as a typical episode, you know, it's like nobody's going to the place where the murderer or the, you know, the place where the, the victim was killed or, you know, like the places where, um, you, you know, it's like, sure, there's a Ben Horn's office scene, but that's as close to the real world locations as we're going to get from here on. And, um, I think partly, um, due to this plot structure there's all these drastic jumps in logic too and from time uh from one you know time between scenes uh just doesn't really exist so much either um but you know there's that one scene where you know it's out in the hallway after they've um interviewed leland as bob or interrogated him um, you know, Cooper's solving of things. I mean, they, they all jump to a whole bunch of conclusions. And, um, you know, when he lays everything out for Harry and Albert, um, you know, most of it's just unprovable conjecture that just happens to sound good. You know, we've got um, Ben Horn's blood test. He's the wrong type. And um, then he says, you know, Harry, the answer is right in front of me from the very beginning. Uh, what did the little man do in my dream? He danced. And, you know, after Laura's death, Leland danced compulsively. And it's like, okay, yeah, that kind of matches up, sure. Uh, we were told Bob the killer was a gray-haired man, and when Leland killed Jacques, his hair turned gray overnight. Okay, you know, I'm I'm sort of with you still, even though it's a little... Um, you know, like, I don't understand why that would have happened <laughs> to give a clue. Leland said that when he was a child, the gray-haired man who lived next door was named Robertson. Mike said he, the people Bob inhabited were his children. Um, I don't think he did say that. I think he said that the uh, the uh, 
the fears and the pleasures were his children, but you know, maybe that's just me being a grammar nerd. Who knows? But anyway, he, he adds that to say Robertson, son of Robert. Um, though, you know, Leland isn't actually a son of Robert. Um, <clears throat> the, the letters under the fingernail, R-O-B-T, Bob was spelling his name, a signature and a demon self-portrait. Okay. I'll give you that one. Um, Though you'll note that when Bob is inside Doppelcooper in season three, there's no fingernails, anything going on. So that could just be a Leland thing. You never know. Who knows? Maybe Leland was kind of leaving clues in that way. Um, you know, Harry says, why would he kill her? And then Cooper says, Laura was writing about Bob in her diary. Leland found it, ripped out the pages. Uh, she knew he was on to her. It's like, well, maybe, maybe not, you know um in part sure <laughs> uh it was leland who placed the call from ben horn's office to laura the night she died he was the third man outside jacques cabin window he took the girls to the train car it was his blood we found not ben horn's you know it's like okay that all basically matches up and then um harry then why kill maddie so cooper says maybe she reminded him of laura maybe uh or maddie was going home perhaps he couldn't bear to part with her he wanted to relive the experience or maybe she realized that bob was the killer and he found out so you know he he leaves a whole bunch of conjecture right here in plain sight and um you know he's got all this confidence while he's saying it so we're we're you know prone to believe him but right at you know, in, in episode 14, right after uh, Audrey goes up to um, to Cooper while he's reading the diary, you know, he, he connects the dots that, um, you know, it's like it all points towards Ben Horn. And, you know, he tells Harry, you know, it's like, you know, the mic, he collapsed and, you know, he was pointing at Ben Horn. So, you know, it's like he has all this confidence and he puts the clues together the way he sees uh, most fit for the time, but it also, you know, it, it's kind of complicated because it's not all necessarily true. It's just what his intuition is pointing at. So this episode isn't as cut and dry as it even tries to project that it is. Yeah, and sure, okay, the logic jumps are quick because, you know, you've got to solve the crime by the end of the episode, but there's also this weird thing with Twin Peaks where, like, you know, usually there's time to breathe in this show. You know, the little moments of, like, fixing the chairs before they, uh, before Cooper and Harry uh, speak to Ronette. You know, things like that. None of that is here. Um, you know, Donna practically teleports between events. Um, you know, it's like she she hears Andy talk about, you know, Jeonum Solitaire. And, um, you know, next thing we see is like, you know, there's not even a commercial break. Like she's literally just right there next to Cooper out in front of the Tremont's place. You know, it's like there's no transition. It just happens. Um, and, you know, it happens again to her when, um, you know, right after she's left alone in the Palmer living room, right after almost being killed by Leland and Bob, uh, you know, she immediately goes into a forest and you know she's breaking down at the time but you know it's like james is right there and you know james's logic all by itself you know it's like he barely gets information uh i mean you know he he like proposes to donna at the very beginning you know scene two and then you know like the very next time we see him you know donna's broken down and she's telling him about maddie and then he says you know this is bad you know and 
<laughs> so it's like, you know, all or nothing, literally, from James this episode. No transition between. You know, we also don't see what happens to Gerard after this scene either. You know, it's like, did he did he actually die? You know, it's like, who knows? Um, you know, Doc Hayward is there and everything, but you know, Cooper, after he gets his information from Gerard, he just, you know, like stares and walks away without like even suggesting, you know, it's like, okay, now it's time for his medicine or anything. You know, what what ends up happening there is Cooper looks like he has zero empathy for Mike. You know, it's like he gets his answer and that's it. And um you know, the, the empathy's gone when he's talking to Donna, too, out in front of the Tremont's place. You know, it's like he's like, you know, open the letter, uh, read it. And, you know, like she's starting to break down because, you know, it's like you know, the, the second she says, you know, this is the night I die or however Laura said it. You know, that should have been the moment that Cooper would have stepped in and said, you know, say, Donna, are you comfortable reading this? Would you like to or would you like me to? You know, something something a little more coopery but you know in this case you know don is basically forced to keep reading all the way through and you know sure larflin boyle delivers these great kind of monologues so i totally understand from a from a viewer point of view that we want her reading it but like it just doesn't feel good coming from cooper um but yeah so like between how he treats donna and mike just as information rather than people uh it's it's odd and i mean it ends up kind of feeling like the whole episode is a lot like how there's empathy missing from leland you know until the ripcord is removed and um you know do do the pre-episode climax scenes of this episode illustrate the um compressed nature of how leland sees the world in a way or like how bob sees it you know, it's like, you know, you cut corners, you don't stop to think too hard about anything, you know, you don't worry about, you know, characters being anything more than what you need them to be right then. Um, I don't think they exactly did it on purpose, but if they did do it on purpose, um, the the one effect is like with all of that already happening, it allows that um, no attention is called to the massive plot hole that viewers, you know, can just look past how last episode Jerry spoke clearly, uh, Jerry Horn, you know, like the, the pillar of brains, uh, you know, he's, he said that Leland can't represent Ben because he's also under investigation yet, you know, here Cooper says, you know, it's like, I recommend you, um, you know, Leland Palmer be your lawyer. Uh, so, you know, if Bob's in charge, he wouldn't necessarily understand that Leland wouldn't easily, um, be able to do that, like from a legal standpoint. And also, um, Bob wouldn't understand that Leland wouldn't easily protect his child's killer, you know, because <clears throat> I mean, if you look at it, um, uh, Leland absolutely protects Bob. So, you know, why wouldn't Leland also protect Ben? You know, it's, it makes sense to Bob. <clears throat> and, you know, empathy is essentially non-existent in that scene you know and um you know like we also have to whistle past you know the two tremont houses never needing to be explained and um you know it's like when when scenes are fast when information is coming fast you know it's like you're you're allowed to forget that kind of stuff without going hey <laughs> i don't know and um why ben stayed quiet 
when he was being carted away to the um, the sheriff station, instead of you know like wait a minute, why why is Leland being allowed to do this? You know, it's like he stays quiet too. So you know, the plot hole again is um, left alone. Beyond that, I don't think it was too intentional, but um, you know the the fact that it matches up so well with the um, illustration of lack of empathy, you know, that's that's kind of a nice after effect. And I'm going to be talking a lot about you know, how Bob comes through this episode. And I'm going to be talking about how the supernatural comes through this episode a lot too. So I'll get back to the Tremont house, that kind of thing. Um, but um, another way that the supernatural's presence kind of comes out is that it carries over the inversions. You know, like how last episode was completely inverted with, um, you know, Leland almost being the main character, that kind of thing. There's still a lot of um, power inversions. and you know, a whole bunch of inversions in this episode. And that's going to be my next question. How do we see inversions through Twin Peaks? The first one I'm going to talk about is like the only Norma scene in here. It's when um, Norma and Vivian are talking to each other. And, um, you know, Vivian is sitting in the low spot and Norma is standing up um, on the other side of the counter. And like even the camera angles show that um, that Norma should be in the power position here, except it's Vivian who's critiquing. And, um, you know, like Norma just can't stand how um, Vivian just can't be happy with anything of hers. And, um, you know, it's it's almost like it's almost saying that Norma has all this power that she could use here but um she concedes the power all over to vivian also on the more worldly side of things we have ben horn um you know he's he was once powerful now he's left essentially with nothing uh being in the cell and then he's left with even more nothing by the end of the scene um and you know this is the conclusion to the mill plot so where he is at the end of this is how he ended up at the end of the mill plot so, you know, Tojimura arrives and Ben, you know, he's pontificating. He's like, this is the long, dark night of my soul, etc. You know, he's like, you know, he's he's Shakespearing it up as much as he possibly can. And, um, you know, like while he's blathering on, um, you know, Catherine takes her foot out, which is, you know, a nice um, a, a nice way to uh, remember how they uh, they have their trysts from season one. And um you know, it's like he, he realizes based on her foot who it is. And, you know, then, you know, of course, he like begs her to give an alibi. And, you know, it's like he um he happily signs Ghostwood away to her. And, you know, he happily signs over the mill to her. And, um, you know, at the end of it, um, <clears throat> you know, she she says, you know, she'll consider telling the sheriff, uh, you know, about the alibi. And, um, you know, Ben, ben it's all, you know, but it's the truth after all. And Catherine sends out the, you know, like one of the, one of the better lines of the episode, honestly. Um, you know, we've spent our entire adult lives lying to each other. Why spoil it with the truth now? And, um, <laughs> you know, we got Ben still wiping the bars with the cloth and he's shouting after her. And, um, yeah, so Catherine gets exactly what she wants. Um, you know, the the end results of this whole thing, you know, broken down uh, just structurally, we've got Catherine's Tojimura check going to Josie. 
So Ben Horn has no profit. Ben's signature is there for Catherine, so she gets everything she wants, but, you know, she's not exactly going to give him an alibi. So he's still not out of prison for it. And he only gave that signature under these circumstances because he owned One-Eyed Jacks, and Laura wrote about it in her diary, which got him into the jail cell in the first place. So we've got... um you know, the, the Leland Bob framing him with the fox fur, um, you know, that would have taken a lot longer to put together had the diary not been one of the simultaneous events with Audrey's uh, uh, information in episode 14 pertaining to the same object of inquiry, which was him. So we got Ben's co-conspirators of the arson, both winning from this. His business partner, Leland, nearly gets away with murder. Ben is punished for karma around his secret business, essentially. You know, all of his shady dealings leave him with literally nothing, thanks to Laura Palmer and Audrey Horn speaking up. And, um, you know, the, the other thing I should probably mention is that this is also the last of the Tojimura moments. Um, so, like, we've got artifices all falling away by the end of this episode as well. Just like, you know, we were shown that... Um, Catherine was the identity under Tojimura. You know, it's like, we'll also see everybody realize that, um, you know, Leland is uh, connected to Bob. So, um, you know, in this episode, we've got Ben seeing Catherine for what she is. And he also gets to see Leland for what he is, um, you know, at that switcheroo moment. So Ben Horn is actually present for both of these um you know, the non-supernatural and the supernatural identity revealings. Um, So it's interesting that as he's losing absolutely everything, he is also seeing very clearly here. And, um, you know, it's it's also interesting that what he does with this knowledge is he decides to wander into a delusion very soon. So what we get from Ben Horn the rest of this episode, he, he, you know, he cracks the peanut shells of the roadhouse. He doesn't help move the tables. Um, and, you know, after the after Cooper's monologue about invoking magic, you know, he basically says, would you like us to hum a Tibetan chant, perhaps? So, you know, like he, um, you know, then, then he says nothing when he's told to move to the sheriff's station on the way to the interrogation room. And, um, you know, it's like, does he not say anything there? because he'd already lost everything that he would fight for. And, you know, it's like, then he realizes that, you know, like when he does say one more thing, he says, Leland? And, you know, that's one more thing that he didn't even know he could lose. You know, it's like, he's, he has to acknowledge that he doesn't know yet another business partner the way that he thought he did. And, um, you know, from from this point when he finally sees Leland, you know, that that was like that one final straw where he's finally set free and he's at a zero point. Um, kind of a lot like where Donna is left at the end of this episode, too, honestly. Um, so, yeah, like him and Donna are left at zero points by the end of this episode. I'd say the last of the main mundane kind of um, power inversions, we've got Lucy, you know, finally taking control of her circumstances. You know, like the uh, the last time Cooper grilled her about, you know, it's like, what does she want? She's like, I don't know. And she says that over and over. But like now she does take power. 
you know it's like and you know like while she's taking the power she's taking you know she she's holding the men in line too you know it's like andy isn't handling things you know not all the way in, in this episode he's repeating you know Jeunon solitaire except he pronounces it even worse than i just did uh <laughs> you know he he finds that um you know he says you know that's impossible when um cooper uh and laura you know when when cooper says that he and laura have the same dream um but you know then he's leaving the main plot from that point forward you know he he's not there in the um the roadhouse scenes um to you know to be in the same room as the giant because i guess you know that has to happen in 25 years when he meets the fireman you know what what he ends up getting is he gets um he gets uh dick tremaine over to the sheriff's station and um you know how he does it you know uh, lucy is telling him um you know what actually is the case and that you know dick tremaine and andy could be possible fathers to her baby and um you know andy you know, he he takes it upon himself you know it's like he firmly calls tremaine you know it's like tremaine brennan you know we need to talk and then you know that is only if you're not too busy <laughs> and so like he he obviously doesn't have enough power here you know, Dick doesn't want to take responsibility either. You know, during their conference room meeting, you know, he says to Andy, you know, it's like, got a light, which, you know, of course, Andy doesn't have and Dick does have. So that's the kind of power that Dick Tremaine is concerned with. And yes, I do understand, you know, he says, got a light. And everybody in the universe was saying, got a light if they've got a cigarette. You know, it's like that was supposed to be the pickup line that you use in a bar so you know of course he's saying it because you know he's like you know it's like oh i'm super charming and you want to be with me so i'm gonna say got a light uh, yeah so <clears throat> it's um it's not a future reference to um the uh the woodsman in part eight so you know still an interesting rhyme um but anyway okay so we've got We've got Dick and Andy being kind of like on the fence with like what kind of power they have and uh, where they give it away. And we've got Lucy demanding, you know, it's like, OK, she's keeping her baby. That's not up for discussion, which is really cool. I love how she actually does like put everything down very clearly, just like her phone instructions. You know, then she talks about how there's a test for a blood type, but that's after the baby is born. And until then... Lucy wants complete cooperation from both of them. And, you know, it's, um, it's really, it's really good on Lucy. I'm happy for her. Um, and, um, you know, of course that scene ends by panning up to the fire alarm or the, uh, yeah, the fire detector. And, you know, sure. That was, uh, that was foreshadowed when Andy got the clarity with Lucy, you know, it's like the, the, um, the repairman, he was the one talking about the sensors uh, that he was testing. And, you know, that's the guy who was looking back and forth between Andy and Lucy when he was learning about, you know, it's like, but it could be dicks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it's interesting that they're kind of connected to, you know, why the sprinklers go off. But, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's pretty much the end of those kind of physical stuff. So yeah, there are a lot of inversions in this episode still, but um, I'd say probably the wildest one out of the bunch is when Albert goes from having confidence only in physical evidence to telling Cooper to go on a vision quest. 
So after getting an establishing shot of Maddie's face wrapped in plastic, and, you know, note, this is the last time we'll see Cheryl Lee in show until the finale, uh, we get a slow hero walk between Albert, Dale, Harry, and Hawk. And um, this marks uh, Ferrer's uh, other series being canceled. You know, a couple episodes ago um, in, in, um, in episode 13, how Gordon Cole came in and said Albert couldn't be here today. Um, yeah, that's because uh, Ferrer got cast in a different series, but that series didn't make it, and he's back to being able to be Albert here. So, yeah, they do the slow hero walk. They've got these um, these trees in in focus and out of focus. There's like this out of focus layer right behind them as they walk, which is um, I, I'd say that's thematically relevant. <laughs> and um, it blurs down to Albert's hand, and we get to see him holding the evidence. You know, the the letter O on the um, probably on the Flesh World magazine paper. Um, and you know, Albert says. The short answer is this is the work of the same ghoul who killed Laura. More fan mail. The letter O under Maddie's ring fingernail. They were str- there were strands of fur, fur <laughs> clutched in her right hand. And, you know, we get the white fur strands laced with formaldehyde, you know, dead and stuffed. And Harry's ready to continue the physical world procedure. You know, he says, I'll make phone calls. Leland will know how to get in touch with Maddie's family. So... You know, Harry is not at all skeptical of where um, where Leland is in this whole thing. And uh, yeah, so he goes to trust Leland again. You know, the guy he spoke up for uh, in front of George uh, in, in front of uh, um, Sternwood. And we've got Cooper saying, you know, Harry, don't make any calls. I've I need 24 hours to finish this. And we get Albert here saying, Cooper. I don't know where this is headed, and he really doesn't know where this is headed, which is why he's saying this. But the only one of us with the coordinates for this destination is Hardwired is you. Go on whatever vision quest you require, stand on the rim of the volcano, stand alone and do your dance. And then he grabs Cooper's arm and says, just find this beast before he takes another bite. And then he walks away. And Cooper says, God help me, I don't know where to start. And Hawk backs up Albert and says, you're on the path. You don't need to know where it leads, just follow. So um, as far as I can tell, this is the only time when Albert and Hawk are in lockstep about things. Um, You know, this does not happen every day, and I don't think it ever happens again. Um, And, you know, the other thing about Albert this episode that's kind of inverted is the fact that his entire amount of uh, snark is basically gone, except to piggyback on on Ben Horn's gag about, you know, do we need to hum? And, you know, Albert says, I think it's going terrifically well, don't you? Except even then, he's being snarky, but he's not disrespecting anyone. He's just, uh, you know, disrespecting a process that's kind of in the middle. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we finally get the Albert that we're going to see for the rest of the show. And, you know, I don't know if he learned a lesson in his time away or what, but, uh, the writers have at least. Another thing worth noting about Albert is that during, um, Cooper's explanation of all the details that make him think that he should have had the clues to know about Bob and Leland. 
Albert is the second person to light a cigarette right after Dick Tremaine. Um, yeah, he's right there. He, he lights it up. So, you know, it's like one outside of the case, one inside the case. Um, you know, both of those together allow the sprinklers to go off. So we have Cooper going into the supernatural for sure. And we also have um, Donna intersecting a lot with it. And, um, you know, this is her last episode of doing it. You know, is Donna allowed to leave the influence of the supernatural? So after the framing device of this episode with the uh, with the four lawmen, we've got um, this dark um, part of the double R. And we we see Donna kind of looking off absently in in this really really dark booth, and um, you know then then she smiles as James arrives, and you know he's all smiles too. Um, you know he says he went for a ride last night, and it sounded like singing. You know singing about last night. So you know they um there there's a camera focus on their hands and like they're tangling fingers at this point too and um you know it, it it sounds like they had sex either for the first time or the second time or whatever but um you know now that maddie was gone they were allowed to be a couple and you know they consummate so um you know it's probably the same time that uh cooper and uh, harry and everybody were getting maddie out of the lake and um yeah, James has a ring for her that she opens, not him. And, um, you know, he just says, you know, I just think we should be together all the time. And she says, really? And he says, if that's okay with you. And then she says, it's perfect. And then, you know, they both get up to kiss over the booth. And, you know, this could be their happy ending. You know, we've we've got um, Donna and, and um, Adam from Diane Podcast. He said... Um, Donna's insulated in the teen romance storyline. And if there can be a leakage of the supernatural into that, it makes it feel like the surface of the screen isn't even safe. And where else can it spill over into? So, you know, that's a good, a good first scene of this episode or you know, first main scene of this episode where, you know, it's like it absolutely intrudes into this scene because yeah i mean they should have had a happy ending at this point except donna hears andy uh you know deputy andy talking about you know i'm solitaire um you know donna walks over to him and says you know mrs tremont and he says but it was mr smith and you know so she makes a connection that you know the tremonts and harold get to see this so donna makes a connection you know when two events occur simultaneously pertaining to the same event uh so you know she is paying strict attention here instead of to her um her happy little ending and um you know she says i have to find agent cooper and then she goes off and you know we get andy saying it one last time for the scene but right after that we have um, Donna and Cooper in front of the Tremont's lawn. You know, it's like there's no scenes in between this. It just, you know, it's just like, snap, you're there. It's like, okay. So we have Donna talking. Um, she says, Mrs. Tremont's the one who told me about Harold Smith. She had a grandson who said the same words on Harold's suicide note. And because Harold wouldn't have seen the grandson, at least according to her, you know, it has to be a message. Except, you know, this is when we get a flashy woman of middle age 
with fancy sunglasses. She comes to the door and, you know, her mother passed away three years ago. There's no children. And she says, I'm the only one here. So I, you know, and the, and the viewers, you know, we all ask, you know, did the Meals on Wheels route change via Mandela effect? You know, Cooper, Cooper even questions the delivering of food here to the address. You know, it's like you, you delivered food to this address, you know, but, you know, addressing the thing and ignoring it from then on must be, you know, TV's way of making us forget that the question ever needed asking, you know. You know, it's like, oh, somebody asked the question, that must be okay. And then, you know, we can start whistling past it without any kind of explanation. It's kind of like how um, I still remember in part four of uh, season three where, you know, Mr. C's Garmin Bosia vomit was getting analyzed by a lab. And, you know, of course, you know, do we ever hear anything else about that? No, of course not. You know, just whistle past it. You know, it's uh, addressing the issue is often enough for our memories to say like, okay, you know, it, it got addressed. You know, it's like, did it get answered? No. Did it get addressed? Yes. Is it the same thing? Uh, apparently if the story goes fast enough. So anyway, from here, Cooper just says, Donna, let's go. And this is what makes Tr uh, Mrs. Tremont say, Donna, are you Donna Hayward? The morning after poor Harold died, this came up in my mail. I meant to turn it in. Um, so, you know, this was only yesterday in show terms. And, uh, you know, Tremont is not a mastermind criminal here. She didn't hold on to it for days. Exactly. You know, it's like, I could see, you know, missing a day. Uh, of, you know, making it to the mailbox again and putting the red flag up or something, you know, things come up. So, yeah, I, I don't think that was necessarily supernatural. But also, I mean, is it some kind of weird amnesia effect? You know, it's, <laughs> it's not necessarily something that's been ingrained in the show yet, but it does still kind of match with that. Um you know, when when people are presented with lodge space elements setting in, uh, you know, the, the mind kind of wanders away from it. You know, it's almost like, you know, it's like you kind of know it's there, but, you know, trying to remember it like a dream. You know, it's like things will get weird. And, you know, who knows? Maybe it's just weird enough when you're when your house sometimes gets um, layered over with uh, <laughs> with some supernatural characters. But anyway, we're starting to come up on the actual um diary entry so you know we get this letter um you know the first thing donna does is she verifies that it's harold's handwriting so um you know asking about harold you know is this why he said laura knew the ultimate secret the secret of knowing who killed you um you know he'd already had this when he said that and you know that means that he would have also already had this uh this page when he said I've read this cover to cover. There are no secrets here when, um, you know, it turns into, you know, like, why didn't you hand this in to the police? And, uh, you know, that also means that he really did read it on purpose about um, that making Donna uncomfortable entry about, you know, what Laura thought about her. So, uh, yeah, Harold's a complicated character that I'm not super fond of, let's say. Anyway, as far as this letter goes, or as far as this diary entry goes, Cooper says, uh, you know, open it. And, uh, you know, she figures out it's a page from Laura's diary. And, um, you know, if, if, if Boyle wasn't so good at the line deliveries, I bet Cooper should have been the one who actually read this. Um, but, you know, besides, you know, the, the show, um, the show conceit of wanting another voice reading it, uh, you know, it's like it all all that does is take away Cooper's uh, ability for empathy. 
So the entry kind of has this kind of content, you know, uh, Laura had the strangest dream. It was in a red room. You know, she describes the episode two dream and, uh, you know, Laura wanted to tell the old man who Bob was, but my words came out slow and odd and she found it frustrating trying to talk. Um, then she whispered the secret in his ear. So what I find really interesting about this is I would assume that if she was the one writing this, um, everybody else would be jumbled backwards and she would be able to understand herself, but she understood that she was also speaking backwards. So it's like she, um, she was in a point of view outside of herself here, I think. So anyway, Cooper knows that the thing whispered in his ear was the secret of who Bob, uh, who, you know, who Bob was, uh, whispered in his ear. And, um, you know, uh, the the entry goes on somebody has to stop bob bob's only afraid of one man he told me once a man named mike i wonder if this was if this was mike in my dream even if it was only a dream i hope he heard me no one in the real world would believe me so i I don't know. I mean, this this entry was rushed. Yeah, I don't think Jennifer Lynch had a thing to do with this. Because, um, I mean, it, j just think about it. Is Bob actually afraid of anything? Uh, I mean, yeah, maybe, but it's really doubtful. And um, there are very slim reasons that Bob would ever speak of fears, especially around Laura. Yet, you know, here we are with her delivering this exposition to viewers that, you know, that, you know, would never realistically actually happen, except to speed the plot along to get the details in. Um, you know, th th this is this is probably the worst extreme of the uh, the plot compression that happens here. You know, I mean, sure, it's emotionally riveting, but it absolutely falls apart under slight scrutiny. And, um, you know, it's over oversimplified logic jumps here, and um, it really adds the wrong kind of character to Bob. Um, I mean, you know, maybe it's one of those things where, um, you know, if, if Bob can write uh, through her into the diary, you know, maybe she understands things about Bob that, you know, he wouldn't have to say aloud, you know? Um, and you know, maybe he is more complicated than just being a talisman for appetite. Um, yeah. So who, who knows? And who knows? Maybe it's one of those things like Wyndham Earl's uh, extreme changes of backstory, you know, it's like, maybe they thought they could go somewhere with this and then they just decide later not to. Anyway, we see Andy watching at this point, so we have a sympathetic listener at this point, finally. And um, and Donna goes on to say, tonight is the night that I die. And, you know, any time from here is where Cooper should have cut in and, um, you know, let her, let her have a way out if she wasn't interested in actually taking this on, you know? But anyway, we got Donna continuing to read. I know I have to because it's the only way to keep Bob away from me. The only way to tear him out from the inside. I know he wants me. I can feel his fire. But if I die, he can't have me anymore. And, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of, you know, show don't tell exemptions right here. Uh, you know, it's it's like saying the quiet part out loud in a lot of ways, but, you know, also, um, 
this shows that Bob is an intruding force in her. And, you know, they, they kind of do nod to the fact that, um, he was writing through the diary with her, you know, it's like, he's already kind of, um, you know, whether he can inhabit multiple people at the same time, or, you know, he, if this is a transition point into, you know, his next intended host, you know, who knows how it is. And, you know, maybe he could just, you know, walk inside any hole in any person. There's a lot of stuff in here that actually does work with what we see in the diary. I just think it's kind of um, out of character for the uh, for the diary writer, let's say. So Donna finally stops, and Cooper says, you know, in front of Donna, he says, Laura and I had the same dream. And, you know, Andy says, that's impossible. And Cooper says, yes, it is. And, um, and then the scene just ends, you know, he's like, deputy, take Donna home. I have to see Gerard. And he walks away without taking the pages from Donna. Uh, I guess it's because it was labeled to her, you know, who knows? Um, you know, so much weirdness is just experience though. You know, we, we do understand Laura's stakes better than ever here, but, um, you know, should we have gotten that information? Eh, probably not. But, you know, we have it, and Cooper has it for his uh, possible investigation. And um, also, Donna has it. You know, is she now allowed to grieve now that she helped Laura reveal herself to Cooper? Is it kind of like how, you know, Audrey can, like, completely leave behind all her past trauma and uh, go on now that she helped uh, get her father arrested? You know, is this now like, you know, Donna's plot point has been completely satisfied and now she can move forward? I mean, in a lot of ways, I'd say yes. And, you know, she begins grieving uh, for Laura at the Palmer house. And, you know, she goes to the Palmer house because she has this tape for Maddie. But, you know, she's wearing the sunglasses here that um, kind of imbue her with Laura uh, aspects. And, um, you know... She is just satisfied the fact that, you know, she doesn't need to be here anymore. You know, like she doesn't need to be here for the Laura plot anymore. Yet she is absolutely in danger of getting killed now. You know, it's like Maddie, Maddie satisfied her story plot points. And, you know, then she decided, you know, okay, I'm going to leave. And then she gets killed by Bob. And we see we see Donna going right into the same kind of situation in the same room. Anyway, she tells, she tells Leland, you know, this is for Maddie. And then she presents a copy of just you to be sent to Missoula. And, um, Leland notices the sunglasses right away. And Donna says they were Laura's and then Maddie gave them to her. So, you know, following that path, Donna is the third person in the pattern who could therefore also be murdered. Um, you know, Teresa looked like Laura is killed. Maddie looks like Laura is killed. Donna is in Laura's sunglasses and smoking is nearly killed. She's in that interrupted pattern of threes, um, that seems to come up from time to time. At this point, we have Leland stepping into the center of the murder room. You know, Don this is when Donna does light the cigarette and she says, Mr. Palmer, did you know that they found Laura's secret diary? Another one no one knew about, did you? Or did you? Um, you know, and then she explains that it was Harold who, it was with Harold who killed himself a few days ago. And, um, you know, the, the big question is, Donna, 
why aren't you keeping secrets now? You know, now that you're in actual danger. <laughs> and, you know, we get Leland faking concern for Harold, but he is very concerned about the fact that there's another diary. And he said, I had no idea. And, you know, Donna's practically goading him at this point. You know, it's like she just wants to get through, um, you know, uh, getting through or processing her emotions on this issue. And she says, I wish I knew what was in it, don't you? I think about Laura all the time, you know, which is real grief for a change. And, you know, Leland, Leland absolutely locks onto her. You know, he looks like he's going to kill her right then. But that's when the phone rings. And, you know, Leland, by the door mirror, um, takes the call from Beth. And, you know, Donna removes her sunglasses at this point And, you know, does, does she become herself again? Uh, does she know something's up instinctively? And say, like, who can say? Um, but, um, you know, we, we get from our side of the conversation uh, the knowledge that Maddie didn't make it home. And, you know, then he tells Donna while he's chewing a stick of gum. And, you know, he tries to be normal and charming now and offers lemonades. And he says, we'll work it out together, um, you know, processing how to feel about Maddie or something, maybe. And, you know, that's when we hear the supernatural hum and then the camera moving to the point where we can see in the mirror Bob chewing the hell out of that gum. Now, for viewers, this scene gets interrupted by a commercial break, but we come right back to Donna. And, you know, she's got her back to the camera, and she's looking at the homecoming photo on the fireplace mantle. And then Leland approaches so quietly and touches her hair for a while behind her. And, you know, this is when she spins around and notices that he's there. You know, and and uh, he's got this, you know, red-orange, you know, quote-unquote lemonade. Uh, that he's holding at her and you know she she calms her breathing and you know she takes the drink and she begins to work through thoughts on maddie and um leland says music will fix this and then he puts on a record and you know we we um we now shift over to a bob view um and bob is getting sad and ups and or upset by the record player and you know he shouts to the um to the flash of lightning and thunder. So, you know, like, is this, um, is this lightning and thunder attached to Bob? I, um, you know, based on the fact that it shows up in the roadhouse later on, I would say no, but, um, I think he's feeling this storm that could possibly be, you know, the, the coming of the end of Leland. Anyway, the sound of that thunder actually transitions into, um, when we look on to Donna but, you know, her lighting is absolutely normal and sunny, like a, like a normal California day that they were probably actually shooting in. And, you know, we get to see Bob again. But then as he turns toward, um, toward Donna, it's Leland who turns. And, you know, he's got this dangerous expression on his face. Um, so, you know, he holds his arms out to her. He shuffles side to side, kind of pinning her into the room without looking like he's doing it. Uh, it's very intimidating. And, you know, he holds out his arm for a dance. And uh, Ashley of uh, Twin Peaks Peaks mentioned, <laughs> you know, pointing out, you know, it's like, um, uh, can we have this dance is Leland's first usage of plural. So, like, did he mean it that way? And it's like, yeah, who knows? But, um, you know, that that was just like common parlance, kind of like out of light. You know, it's like it was just a thing. You know, can we have this dance? It's very polite. And, you know, it's like the royal we or something. 
But, you know, Donna accepts the hand, you know, she's kind of charmed by the whole thing. And they start dancing, you know, just with, you know, holding hands in the, the traditional form. But, um, you know, then we get a shot of the spinning record and we hear more thunder. And um, this is when Leland pulls her in tight. And, you know, she's struggling for distance and she's breathing heavily. And we get um, we get the doorbell ringing at this point, finally. And Leland smiles at her as he lets her go. And he says, you stay right there with a finger point. So, you know, he is, he's still doing his, um, you know, Bob controlling physical space thing. And, um, you know, he walks away. He takes the needle off the record, which could possibly be um, symbolically Donna being saved. But, you know, she's still breathing heavy at this point. And, you know, she's left alone, but, you know, her breath won't regulate. And I don't think she understands quite what was happening. And, you know, we've got Harry coming to the door at this point saying, you know, Leland, we need your help. I'm afraid there's been another murder. And, you know, Donna watches this and she knows it's Maddie. So, you know, she's distracted from the trauma she just got from Leland and, um, you know, focuses back on Maddie. And, um, you know, Leland says, yeah, I'll, he'll, he'll do anything, you know, and then he leaves with Harry and Donna's ignored as they go. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't react to Leland's bad treatment of her, but she does react to Maddie being murdered. And then immediately again, we have like this massive, uh, jump in time and space where the very next second of film that we see is Donna walking through, um, a foresty area. And, you know, she's bawling at this point. And, you know, she delivers the message to James about Maddie. Yeah. So, you know, James drives up and, you know, she tells him that Maddie's dead, um, that it's the same killer as Laura's. And, um, you know, James says twice, he says, we could have helped her. And then after he says it twice, then he says, this isn't good. And Donna immediately jumps to, you mean us? And uh, James says, I got to go. And <laughs> Donna says, James, it's our fault. Don't leave. Uh, then he says, nothing we do matters. Nothing's ever going to change. Even if we're happy, the world goes to hell. And then, you know, Donna basically has to leave crying. So like, wow, that was a huge about face. Again, you know, compressed logic. Um, it, it's kind of like how the diary entry needed to conveys so much information so we got an unrealistic laura voice now we're getting an unrealistic james voice you know zero empathy now and um you know where where we have um we have an episode where cooper um didn't have any empathy for donna but he did have enough empathy to um you know help leland die um james also gives donna zero compassion so, you know, Donna's batting a thousand this day. And I guess she's getting this lack of empathy because she only has to be here as a tool for the plot. You know, sure, she's being treated like an element of the plot, but, you know, what ends up, you know, j just breaking down what happens for Donna. Okay, we think Donna is going to die. Then we think she'll live. But then, you know, the, you know, her, her coupling with James, uh, which we thought was absolutely going to survive this dies as well and um you know it's like she ends the the episode crying and you know like this is this is probably the best work from donna we're gonna get in this whole show and it just 
didn't work out for her at all, except for the fact that, you know, I guess I guess she should be happy that she still has her life. Yeah, I mean, from from a character standpoint, I think this is very close to the worries that Donna shared with Laura at Laura's grave in episode 10, where she says, I'm mad at you when it was you and me and James that kind of worked. Now you're now you're gone. I love James and it's a mess. Your cousin Maddie's here and something's going on with them. Uh, and maybe. And I think I'm going to end up losing you both or both of you. And, um, you know, it's like, yeah, Maddie's not here anymore, but she did end up losing James and Laura. So, you know, it's like her worst fears at that particular moment have all essentially come true. But she made it out with her life. So I guess that's something. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, yeah, from this point forward, Donna is not looped into any supernatural stuff, so she made it out. Um, she she made it out like Ronette did, honestly, um, where, you know, she was this victim that could have been, but didn't end up being. And, you know, from that point forward, I guess, you know, she's, she's out. And, um... Yeah, I, I still don't know what to make of it. <laughs> I always wanted in future episodes where, um, you know, she could have like been contacted by the Tremans again or something. And, you know, it could have it could have looped her into the Wyndham Earl plot instead of needing to do the who's my daddy plot line. But, you know, what wh what can you do? <laughs> <sighs> All right. Well, we're on to the next question, which is how else does the supernatural surface in this episode? So, yeah, we've seen a lot of actual supernatural surfacing already. We've seen the Tremont House switcheroo. Um, we've seen the diary entry, the uh, the supernatural murderer that, you know, Donna was with, um, you know, all implying alternate uh, alternate states of reality, basically. Um, or, you know, an alternate level of reality, you know, trying to impose on ours or, you know, on the show's reality. Um, but um, but Cooper's entire investigation also leans into the same supernatural this week. Um, and it starts with Albert's blessing, ushering it from the physical to the metaphysical. And, um, you know, that leads, uh, well, honestly, Donna leads, <laughs> leads Dale to the first little bit of supernatural after Albert. And then um, after that, that leads Dale into talking to Mike. You know, the only scene we see with him is Mike is in distress and, um, you know, Philip Gerard is dehydrated and he needs his drug um, to, you know, get back to uh, a safe level for him to live. And um, Doc says any longer can kill him. So, you know, we've got, um, you know, over at Sparkwood and 21 podcast, we have M asking the question, is Gerard's body rejecting Mike's presence? And, you know, like medication is needed to suppress Mike. So, um, you know, we got, um, <laughs> we have Steve, the, the other co-host of Sparkwood and 21 saying an exorcism, an exorcism is what's needed here, but they're doing it with chemicals essentially. Uh, you know, from a from a metaphysical standpoint, that's kind of what's actually happening <laughs> with this uh, inhabiting spirit. And I followed up with that, you know, like what would Philip Gerard think he needs for getting an exorcism? 
oh man, when when Mike chops off his arm and then he comes back from his uh you know what would be seen as probably a psychotic episode and his arm is gone, yeah, it's time to get medicated. Well, I brought up Em and Steve in particular is because in uh, the episode covering the um, episode 16, um, Em asked why Gerard and Mike look the same both on uh, on both sides, you know, whether whether Cooper or Gerard. And, um, you know, Em suggested, you know, maybe Cooper is Mike because, you know, here Laura is wondering if the old man from her dream is Mike, you know, so like, you know, at the time. It was before season three came out and, you know, Em admitted it had to be forced, but it was an interesting thought experiment and one that I'm going to continue to kind of focus on as we go, because, you know, in, in season three and, um, in fire walk with me, um, that character is credited as Philip Gerard and we never hear him called Mike again. So if, um, as as M suggests, if Mike really is like Cooper, you know, he comes to town. Um, you know, a lot of people seem to think, especially with um, you know, with the fact that Philip Gerard has never called Mike again and um, you know, he works very closely with Cooper. You know, it's like you almost kinda wonder if Laura really was the dreamer and she was projecting this whole thing, you know, if if Cooper really is a uh, lodge inv- a lodge spirit investigator trying to solve her murder you know so you could you could look at it from that kind of a you know it's all a dream kind of standpoint and it actually tracks a little bit better than you'd think um you know it's all still highly improbable but you know you you can make a case for it but as far as this episode 16 ep- uh, scene itself We've got Cooper ignoring Mike's pain the same way that he kind of ignored Donna's pain. And, you know, all he says is Bob has killed again. And then he tells Gerard that he and Bob were in Cooper's dream, uh, that Laura had the dream, the the same dream. And um, Cooper literally says, I need to unlock the answer inside me. So, um, you know, Mike gives them some... uh, some choice sentences after that says when he and Bob were killing together, it was a perfect relationship, appetite, satisfaction, a golden circle. So, um, you know, piece by piece, appetite and satisfaction wants based, you know, it doesn't involve having any needs met just wants, it seems. And that makes sense considering Bob's part of that equation. Um, and then, you know, he, he hears a golden, uh, Cooper hears a golden circle and says, a ring, my ring. I gave my ring to the giant. And Mike says he is known to us here. So the, the, um, the being known as the giant, he is known to whatever Mike's faction is. Um, and that, you know, kind of helps explain how, um, you know, the giant appears in the Red Room in episode 29, even though he seemingly is a different faction. You know, it's like they all work together on the same kind of uh, level. You know, maybe just for different companies or different frequencies, let's say, maybe. But anyway, what, what Cooper gets from that is, then he's real. And Mike says, as real as I, uh, he can help you find Bob. So... Uh, Cooper asks how, and then and then Mike says, "You must ask him first. Um, how do I do that?" 
the answer that Cooper gets from Mike is you have all the clues you need and the answers are not here touching uh, Cooper's forehead, my friend. The answer, and then he moves his hand closer to Cooper's chest, is here. And this is when Mike spasms, and Cooper says, I don't understand. And all Mike says after this is so much responsibility. So Cooper just looks at Doc Hayward and leaves. And, um, you know, uh, presumably Gerard passes out. And, um, you know, whatever ends up happening, he's never seen again. Almost as if um, nobody can even remember him. But, you know, I know it's mostly plot focused and the fact that there's uh, some kind of ABC mandate that, you know, they didn't want a one armed man in their show in in a show on their network anymore. But, um, yeah, like from a from a metaphysical standpoint, you know, it's almost like people woke up and just don't see him anymore. Okay, so today, while I'm, you know, fine-tooth combing everything, you know, it's like, I can't help but see Cooper's lack of empathy to Mike. But, you know, in 1990, this was just supposed to be uh, Cooper's visit to Yoda for <laughs> the uh, the extra unlocked knowledge. You know, he's, he's, um, he's you know, going to the hermit to get the, um, the, the final details that he needs for his quest. And... Um, and you know, honestly, it's kind of <laughs> like M's idea. Um, it's you know, if if Cooper really is related to Mike, um, it's like unlocking part of himself to get the answer, which works in a really Jungian integration way. And it's just like the literal words he says, where he wants to unlock the answer inside himself. You know, being the entire goal for the conversation in the first place. So, you know, um, it's Jungian, whether <laughs> whether you put your tinfoil hat on or not. And however that goes, it seems like it worked, even if it hasn't actually unlocked anything in Cooper. Because in the Great Northern Hallway, he next sees the waiter, who um, appears to have uh, received the message. You know, it's like uh, Cooper's on one end of the hallway, the waiter's on the other end of the hallway. The waiter has a, a glass of water on his tray, which, you know... Um, kind of kind of reminds me of you know um you know this is the water this is the well um in that you know the water might actually mean something here um you know is is water actually the source of the weather pattern and you know like how um how it interacts with electricity uh who knows but um anyway the the waiter basically says you know the milk will cool on you but it's getting warmer now and he gives a thumbs up so you know, Cooper, Cooper repeats getting warmer now. And, um, you know, does he know this is the giant accepting an invitation or that he's just on, you know, a good path? Um, kind of works either way, but yeah, it seems like, um, he is known to the giant at this point. Anyway, this is where Cooper actually walks into the standard investigation again. And, like, the only time we see an actual standard investigation scene, except for possibly if you consider the interrogation scene in the sheriff's station. So we've got Ben's office being raided for evidence. And, you know, this is right after uh, the thumbs up from the waiter. Cooper walks into Ben's office because he's been in the Great Northern the whole time since before Gerard. You know, Cooper notices the white fox. Harry thinks he's proven that the phone call to Laura um, 
happened from the phone in Ben Horn's office and he corroborates Leland's story. Um, you know, second time that, um, that Harry is on Leland's side on this, you know, suggests that, um, you know, after the phone call, then he called, uh, or then he, um, he sent Laura down the waterfall, possibly Maddie, um, you know, Ben killed Laura and he killed Maddie too. And, you know, this is what he puts together. Um, Albert places Maddie's death at just before they apprehend Ben. So, you know, that actually fits. And, um, you know, then Albert actually presents Ben Horn's blood test and they all look at it seriously. You know, to viewers, it's hard to know whether that, you know, what that actually means to the investigation. You know, it's like, does this finally put everything in 100 percent um you know um in 100 percent um you know guaranteeing that it actually is the ben horn angle proved or disproved you know it's like we won't get that answer until cooper's laying out all his clues in the sheriff station hallway uh outside of you know when Leland is Bob and, you know, a viewer for the first time has got to ask, you know, it's like, okay, does this scene mean that it's finally going to get back down to earth? And, you know, we're going to start actually seeing the, um, the worldly investigation, uh, meet up with all the clues that the Cooper just unlocked or, um, you, you know, it, it, it kind of sets us up for, we don't know what's going to happen next, but it's probably going to settle down. Yet using um, using T Todd Holland's uh, take uh, uh, <laughs> words uh, of a weather opera, um, you know that that metaphysical uh, weather opera begins in Act Three when uh, you know Bob is at the record player and it starts flashing blue, um, you know, blue lightning in the scene, but only on Bob's side. Um, you know that it carries over to Donna's space audibly, so you know it's like we can we can feel the supernatural actually creeping into the episode even more, and it carries over visually into the real world when you know when they're at the roadhouse, which you know uh, historically speaking and future speaking, uh, the roadhouse is where the veil between the worlds is regularly thin. So this is no exception, and it's the perfect setup to meet the giant on purpose. And I will say this blue lightning that's kind of artificially um, shown over the top of something that seems obviously not actually stormy, um, this effect happens when, um, when Laura is asking Bob, you know, who are you, who are you really, and fire walk with me. And... Um, you know, it's like the, the blue lighting, you know, coming and going. So like, I feel like, um, that lighting technique actually is for when some kind of, uh, supernatural truth is like plainly visible in the real world for the people seeking answers from the supernatural. And, um, you know, this is nowhere near as creepy as it is used in Firewalk with me there. Cause I mean, that's, that's the rape scene where, Bob climbs in through the window. Um, and, you know, obviously Lynch uses it in a different way than Hunter does here. But um, it's it's still interesting that the uh, that the visual language is actually very, very similar uh, for the lighting. And that'll kind of show how important this is, um, what Cooper is doing right here, because he does wake up to the truth. And, um, 
when it happens later on in this episode, you know, it's like we see um, we see the lightning on Bob's side, but it's when he is revealing himself through Leland, um, just like when um, Laura finally understood that Bob was there through Leland. But what the supernatural um, intrusion is in the roadhouse scene, you know, the, the Back to the Double R podcast pointed out how this is basically yet another inversion here. And um, they're talking about how the detective fiction trope is being inverted with this roadhouse scene. Um, you know, this should be the scene in, you know, in any detective fiction, you know, Agatha Christie books, you know, like all those, all the detective fiction tropes at this point point to the fact that the roadhouse scene should be where cooper lays it all out to all the important characters you know he's supposed to dismiss alternate theories and explain answers to those in the room and you know the the double the back to the double r podcast asks you know is cooper a good detective is he just receptive to forces and does being receptive to forces make him a good detective so as far as the roadhouse scene being set up to where it should be all laid out. You know, we've got Cooper, Harry, Hawk, and Albert, you know, the investigators. Um, ben and Leland and Leo, you know, they're the suspects. Ed is there because um, he was a decoy suspect in all the scripts up to that point. So, you know, he still is a suspect. You know, it's just more for the uh, the subterfuge that the production company was doing to keep the public in the dark about who was the killer. Um, and you know, was Bobby also a suspect like that? Or, you know, was he just the one most connected to Laura's darker side? You know, I, I'm not, um, it, it's harder to pin down exactly what the intent was for Bobby to be there other than, you know, he'd be good at bringing Leo, but, um, you know, whatever, whatever ends up working out, it, it does make sense why that, you know, assortment of characters is in the room. Uh, the only two left out is Andy and Donna, and, you know, they've already had, um, you know, reasons to be removed around here. So anyway, how does Cooper actually do anything about this? Um, you know, like, how, how does he go about this scene? He says, gentlemen, two days ago, a young woman was found murdered by the same individual, I believe, responsible for the death of Laura Palmer. I have reason to believe that the killer is in this room. As a member of the Bureau, I spend most of my time seeking simple answers to difficult questions. In the pursuit of Laura's killer, I've employed Bureau guidelines, deductive technique, Tibetan method, instinct, and luck. But now I find myself in need of something new, which, for the lack of better word, we shall call magic. So, you know, this is when Ben and Albert get snarky, but what he's doing is... Um, Instead of dismissing theories to get closer to the real answer, he dismisses techniques that he's used up to this point and um, says that magic is going to be where the answer comes from. But, you know, then he says, but someone is missing. And, you know, this is when a green clock chimes um, where, um, you know, OK, so the sound is coming from something green, which tends to be like on a positive wavelength, according to how Lynch uses the color in the future. And, you know, this is when we see Briggs bringing in the elderly waiter. So, you know, Cooper suggests magic, and um, immediately we get the character associated with his uh, magic answer machine, you know, the uh, the giant. And, um, you know, the, the waiter offers gum to Cooper, and Leland recognizes it, you know, from the gum that he liked as a boy. And, uh, you know, he says, you know, I, I know that gum. I used to chew it when I was a kid. 
that's my most favorite gum in the world. And, um, you know, this is when the, the waiter says that gum you like is going to come back in spot in style. You know, Leland liked to chew the gum when he was a kid. Uh, he's kind of chewing it now. Does that mean he's waking up back to himself before he was ever, um, attempted to be possessed by Bob? You know, it, it tends to seem, I mean, it seems to go that way. And, um, you know, we have the lodge space communicating through, um, through a childhood memory in this case. Uh, childhood memory happens to be the trigger for understanding. And, um, you know, after that gum you like is going to come back in style, everything freezes in this white lightning. Um, you know, the, the saxophone music kicks in, the little man is dancing in the red room image. Um, we see Laura whispering, my father killed me. And, you know, this is Cheryl Lee's last work in Twin Peaks until episode 29 to say the thing in the least elegant way, according to David Lynch. <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> it works for this one. The The scene shifts to, you know, here's the red curtains. Cooper is seen entirely in profile. Um, the giant appears right in front of him, also in profile, and holds his arm out. Um, you know, the, the giant says nothing through this whole thing. He just holds his hand out, and we see his hand with Cooper's ring on it. And then his hand disappears while the ring remains in in that scene. And we watch it fall to the floor all the way down. And it hits the ground in a lot of different tones. So, you know, it's not just um it's not just the the frequency of the hum that um we hear in the Great Northern later when um when Ben and Beverly are looking for song uh, a sound. It's all kinds of different sound frequencies here. Um and, you know, time seems to unfreeze here. And Cooper chews on the waiter's offered gum first. And then he looks down and he picks up his ring. And this is where he puts on the um, the, the false language for, um, for, you know, the trap for Leland. And he says, you know, Ben Horn, I would like you to accompany uh, me to the sheriff's station. You might like to bring along Leland Palmer as your attorney. So, you know, sure, Leland... Leland was back in the fold, according to Ben, you know, that's my Leland. Uh, but, you know, legally, he'd be just as jammed up as he was earlier from the the whole, uh, the hearing from the shock trial. You know, it's like he wouldn't be able to actually practice. Um, it's skipped over for convenience so that we don't notice it. You know, it's same thing as the Meals on re Wheels route changing. But, you know, because we already know that Leland's guilty, we're expecting to you know we're, we're expected as viewers to look past this detail because we know what cooper's thinking at this point you know we're not going to get hung up on the nonsense of why leland and bob go with this so ben leaves the scene silently uh between harry and hawk and leland follows after cooper um or yeah uh leland follows with cooper or after, um, oh, shoot. <laughs> I'm all mixed up. Okay, Leland follows them, and then Cooper follows Leland. And, um, you know, we've got the Major, Bobby, and Ed flanking Leo, uh, still in the still in the, uh, the blue lightning. And, um, you know, it's a great shot. But, you know, who knows? Um how they're left you know they're left about the same way donna was and the same way mike was um you know it's like once you're done 
with the plot you're just you know left to whatever you need to do <laughs> to get out of this story uh <clears throat> and um you know cooper turns and you know he does that big thumbs up like we got this and you know it's super classic uh you know it's it's the gift that'll never die and um you know the old waiter gives him an odd smiling salute back so you know it's like okay the giant has said um there's your message glad we gave it to you and uh good luck so that leads into a commercial break and then next time we see the story pick up uh you know that's when the ben and uh leland switcheroo happens at the interrogation room um and you know bob reveals himself immediately you know unlike at the palmer house when harry interrupts um leland and donna's dance with donna um you know, why, why does he start, you know, throwing his coat and everything else and, you know, fuming like, you know, he's a actual lodge spirit is Cooper the factor for dropping the facade. You know, did he, did he actually take Cooper at his word that, because, you know, um, you know, to quote Spaceballs, evil will always triumph because good is dumb. You know, (laughs) is that how Bob actually thinks of the lawman and, you know, Cooper would never lie. So, um, you know, let, let's take this guy at his word. And, you know, now that um, Bob is actually trapped in an interrogation room, um, you know, physically, uh, does that mean he immediately knows the serious of, seriousness of his situation and, you know, just drops all the facades? And, you know, who knows how they get him into handcuffs because, you know, that's another one of those um, immediate time jump scenes to, uh, to, you know, make things a little more convenient for the storytelling. Um, but you know, the interrogation scene basically starts out, um, you know, it's like Leland's laughing. He's got that short disheveled hair. Um, you know, he laughs as Bob and he says, Oh yeah, I suppose you want to, you want to ask him some questions. So, you know, he's like full on Bob at this point. Um, you know, just like Mike is full on Mike rather than Philip Gerard, you know, Cooper asks, did you kill Laura Palmer? And, you know, he hoots the sky like an alarm or a monkey and you know so he and then you know then he like flips immediately to an unhinged serious face and it's like that's a yes and you know (laughs) cooper asks how about maddie ferguson and you know like the the wild eyes the quiet voice you know what do you think you know i'm asking you oh gosh gee you know like what do you think what do you think yeah he says that multiple times then you know oh gosh gee gee whiz i guess i kind of sorted it i have this thing for knives and then you know he spins and looks right at cooper just like what happened to you in pittsburgh that time huh cooper and you know cooper backs up at this point because this is way beyond just the investigation here uh we see bob in a wider context outside of twin peaks you know right here cooper and bob are connected to this time that the fear overcame cooper and um it's that same moment that Earl and the Lodge use in episode 29 to instill fear in Cooper. So, you know, there's a lot happening here uh, for future storylines, and that's a great one single line to drop in in the middle of this that they actually do go back to. So, um, you know, you got to start asking, you know, it's like, did Bob have physical control over Earl in Pittsburgh uh, when when, when Earl stabbed Cooper and killed Caroline? you know, does Bob have control over Earl now and therefore has information of Earl in the past? Is that how he got the words? Um, you know, it's like, but I mean, essentially, the most important question here is 
um, you know, can can Bob be in more than one place at a time? And um, the answer kind of points to yes, because he's also writing through Laura in her diary, for one. So, like, can he possess anybody? Like, you know, can he get into the holes of anybody if they have them and, you know, kind of exploit somebody, even if he's not, like, you know, possessing them as strongly as he does with Leland? Um, it, it's it's interesting. <laughs> and um, Or does Bob have this information from Cooper due to being a future host of Bob? You know, it's like, does he have access to Cooper's memories here? Uh, in a large space timey wimey way, just like how Annie shows up in Laura's bed in a dreamy kind of state um, in Fire Walk with me. You know, there, there's all sorts of ways that Bob might have that information about Cooper's biggest point of fear. You know, but however, however nice it works, it's a nice place to drop in some foreshadowing to grow from. You know, after this interrogation scene, Cooper uses his tricky logic um, through the expected and overdue Holmesian explanation of how the crime went down. But, um, you know, while none of it is uh, exactly spot on or provable, um, we have um, Harry asking, and it's like, but Bob's not real, right? And, uh, you know, this is exactly when Leland invokes the, uh, you know, I'll catch you in my death bag. I promise to kill again. And, you know, um, and when when he does this, this is when the sprinklers finally go off, which means that the metaphysical storm has finally broke through. And, you know, even if it's not, you know, even, even if it's not natural with the way the rain is coming in, um, it's just as not natural as the supernatural storm in the first place. So it's really, really nice touch that that is happening. So what kind of supernatural events are happening here? You know, um, Leland is soaked uh, when everybody gets in there. Um, or what, No, he, he stands up and he screams as if he's angry or, you know, if, if he's possibly being attacked by the water. Um, and his scream actually turns, it turns filtered, just like Mike's voice is, uh, has that weird voice filter on it. Um, and, you know, then we shift over to the lightning-filled room because the lightning isn't actually happening on Leland's side either. Um, but, you know, it, it matches up with the sprinklers. And, uh, you know, we see the overhead shot of Bob, you know, and Bob's arms are out. And, you know, is he being wounded by the water? Is he drinking it in? Um, you know, what, whatever it is, Bob does not seem afraid of whatever's happening, even if it's hurting him. You know, then it shifts back to Leland again, and, you know, he's rearing his head back, and he slams his head nine nine or ten times into the glass of the door. And, um, you know, we see Cooper was watching Leland do that damage to himself through the other side of that same window. So I wonder, you know, did Cooper actually see Bob doing that, or did he see Leland doing that? And, you know, the pain on Leland's face as he's doing it, or both. And um you know, this actually echoes the ramming of the head into the bathroom mirror that Cooper does at the end of episode 29. So, like, I, I kind of wonder, was Bob actually trying to get into Cooper here just now? Or was he just trying to make a hole in Leland that he can escape out of? And honestly, that makes me wonder um, about episode 29, where, uh, you know, the Doppel Cooper rams his head into the, uh, into the episode 29 mirror. You know, it's like we didn't see Bob in him before that. So, like, was that head injury would actually allowed Bob into Doppelcooper at the time? 
you know, things to think of now and to hopefully remember later. <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, we've got the uh, the lawman finally coming into the room. Um, you know, we see Leland on his back on the floor, and we also see the uh, the ugly remainder of um, Leland's scalp or whatever um, on, still on the door frame after all the hitting. Uh, you know, Cooper says, call an ambulance. And Michael Horse uh, specifically implies how much supernatural they were actually <laughs> invoking in this part of the in this part of the scene uh, by saying, you know, he, uh, Michael Horse said in reflections, that was really interesting to me because we were all in that room and I knew we were calling on evil. When Bob was going to come out of Ray Wise, the director said someone would go someone would go for help. And I said, I'll go. I didn't want to be in that room when they were calling on that evil. It had just it, it had become that real to me. I had a chance to get out of that room and I took it. It was uncomfortable. So yeah, we now we have um, you know, Leland's point of view on the floor. And you know, he does begin to remember as Leland. Um but, you know, the last supernatural moments of the episode focus on Cooper bringing in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And one of the only times we actually get a glimpse of an actual official afterlife in relation to the show's, you know, lore. Like, within the show's lore, we get the proof that there's an afterlife. <clears throat> and, you know, Cooper guides Leland at this point. He says, Leland, Leland, the time has come for you to seek the path. Your soul has set you face to face with the clear light, and you are now about to experience it in its reality, wherein all things are like the void and the cloudless sky, and the naked spotless intellect is like a transparent vacuum without circumference or center. And, you know, Harry and Albert are looking on from the wall, completely soaked. Um, and, you know, Leland... Uh, Cooper says, Leland, in this moment, know yourself and abide in that state. Look into the light, Leland. Find the light. And, you know, Cooper, or Leland says, you know, he sees it. And, you know, Cooper continues to say into the light, Leland. Um, and Leland says, I see it. She's beautiful. Um, and in a happy tone, he says, Laura. And, you know, Cooper says, don't be afraid, you know, invoking the uh, the fear versus love theme of this whole season and you know leland dies and um you know the sprinklers stop and it kind of ends the dream storm once leland's life spark is also expired so um <clears throat> you know cooper takes a very heavy breath but yeah and afterlife exists in twin peaks it kind of matches up with uh with lynch's idea of the afterlife and apparently possibly some of frost and um you know, it's like this is this is probably the only instance of getting any kind of proof of an afterlife, quote unquote, um, until, you know, um, until the age, the angels that, um, you know, Phoebe Augustin got David Lynch to include in Firewalk with me. OK, so obviously I skipped some stuff here um, up to this point. Because I wanted to save that for when we're finally discussing the um, probably the biggest question of this episode. Um, what is the culpability between Bob and Leland? And, um, you know, first thing to look at is, you know, is it all Bob? So after 
after that scene in the sheriff station interrogation room, we get that we get the other framing device ending where it's um where it's Cooper, Harry, and Albert with no hawk this time. I guess, you know, after after Michael Hurst left, you know, that was that was enough for Hawk. And then we get uh the major in Hawk's role. And, you know, he's standing stock still between the path's uh, edges up ahead. And, um, you know, Cooper's drinking coffee at the time when they're discussing things. And, um, I mean, essentially, the the easiest part to prove that Bob is a real, a real thing in Twin Peaks is, you know, rather than just being a delusional projection of Leland, is um, Albert says here, People saw Bob. People saw him in visions. Laura, Maddie, Sarah Palmer. And, um, you know, I add to that list, you know, so did Mike, who they all personally saw in the um, in the interrogation or in a conference room a few episodes ago. And, um, <clears throat> you know, in Twin Peaks mythology, Bob is seen by people. You know, he's seen in Ronette's vision and abstractly in the murder scene and fire walk with me, he brings the rock down on Laura Palmer there too. So, you know, as a 12 year old, uh, watching this for the first time, I absolutely sided hard on Bob being a possessing evil spirit that I did not want possessing me. Um, but you know, I, w- I was 12, you know, there, there's actually a lot of nuance, even in this conversation that's trying to, uh, you know, tie a bow around the fact that, you know, Bob is the, the culprit. You know, there's these other options, you know, a father raping and killing his own daughter to, you know, Bob being a metaphor for the evil that men do. Um, You know, this makes it about as cut and dry as Cooper's earlier Sherlock Holmes style explanation of how Leland did it. You know, so, you know, it's like technically, okay, it works, but, you know, getting the why of it um, fairly wrong, though here we have... um, you know, Ray Wise, uh, in Reflections, he talks about it, um, kind of uh, giving credence to the Bob argument. He says, I played Leland, at least in my mind, as not responsible for any of it, as being completely possessed by Bob, and that's the way it goes in my mind. To me, Leland is totally an innocent, and he was taken over by that malevolent spirit of Bob and did all of those horrific things. I think that he was basically an intelligent, caring, considerate, kind man. That's the way I played it. The grief-stricken father who loved his daughter clearly and could not bear her loss. He just obsessed over it, and his grief took a variety of forms, and he was just overcome and overwhelmed with the loss of his daughter, and I could identify with that. And Bob was just something that came out of the woods. And we see Bob coming out when he's... um you know, not realizing that he couldn't actually represent Ben Horn, Um, you know, using words like start bail proceedings. You know, it's similar to the words uh, Leland and or Bob assembled to explain the money laundering that had been saying, that's my Leland, while getting the fox fur for future framing. So, you know, points for Bob being in control most of the time or possibly always. Then, you know, we see Bob when uh, Leland immediately rages after being shoved into the interrogation room. You know, he throws his coat and his spore coat around like whips. And, you know, more points for Bob. Um, You know, Hawk looking in through the outside window. He says, that's not Leland. 
So, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he, he gave off a cornered animal vibe. You know, he's growling, he's angry breathing, just like he did when he was ready to kill Maddie Ferguson the other episode. You know, Leland Bob shouting in the room while Cooper lays it all out, explaining the clues. Uh, you know, the um, you know, he hoots the sky like an alarm or a monkey. Um, you know, um, you know, he, he does all these things that says that, you know, sure, he's connected to Cooper's uh, Philadelphia days. And then when, um, you know, he, he goes on in that scene to basically explain what Leland was to Bob. He says, oh, Leland, Leland, you've been a good vehicle and I've enjoyed the ride, but now he's weak and full of holes. Um, you know, then he tests the strength of his cuffs. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's almost nearly time to shuffle off to Buffalo and, you know, a small laugh. And, um, you know, Cooper asks him, you know, does Leland know what you've done? And Bob says, Leland's just a babe in the woods with a large hole where his conscience used to be. And when I go, children, I will put pull that ripcord and you you watch Leland remember. Watch him, but not for long. And then he does these two short barks, you know, staring staring stock straight up. And then, you know, he dips his head into his neck like Earl does in episode twenty nine after the fire evacuates from the top of his head. So, um, you know, talking about a large hole. Um in the secret diary of Laura Palmer, Laura speaks about a hole forming in her that's a um, a smaller mouth underneath Laura's mouth. And um, that kind of implies to me that it's her throat, you know, where the gold energy can be sent by a giant into Cooper. Um, and, you know, maybe that that hole um, can, you know, grow bigger over time. And it sounds like the same kind of hole that... Um, that Bob might have been trying to like suck life force out of Maddie from, uh, and um, the same kind of hole that he probably entered Leland from, and you know made more and more of, uh, you know possibly all these holes that he talks about now, uh, or every time that you know say Bob throws blood on the red room floor, like at the end of Fire Walk with Me, and you know conjecture could be how Leland can't remember the actual murder of Laura Palmer. And, um, you know, then he says children and he says, you know, the fears and the pleasures per Mike. Um, and then, um, Bob also says, but not for long here. So, um, is this a premeditation that Leland isn't long for this world that he's going to kill Leland? Um, you know, Harry says that's enough for me. And, you know, as they leave, um, Hawk is staring Leland down, uh, before being the last one to leave. So, you know, if Bob was just a delusion of Leland, uh, would Hawk's uh, senses be quite so peaked at this point? Probably not. And, you know, Harry asks straight out, you know, it's like, now this Bob, he can't really exist. I mean, Leland is just crazy, right? And, you know, that's when we get Leland finishing off the connections to Pittsburgh by saying uh, another connection to Cooper, you know, from the dark of futures past. Uh, the magician longs to see. And, you know, you push into the door. Hawk is still observing through. Uh, one chance out between two worlds fire walk with me and you know, then uh, Leland sits down and you know does the whole thing you know I'll catch you with my death bag you may think I've gone insane but I promise I will kill again and um, you know the the lawmen are are you know hearing all of this you know we, we see them hearing it through the door and you know that's where the the sprinklers go off Bob reacts to the sprinklers uh, you know, the, the unfiltered mic voice, it's all there. I mean, the, the, there's all these proofs that, you know, Bob is a real character. And, um, and then, um, 
you know, after after they come in and find Leland on the ground again, um, you know, this is where we get Leland breaking down, kind of like Bill Hastings does um, in um, in uh, what what is it? Part eleven of season three. Um, you know, it's like the, also the same way that Leland breaks down in Fire Walk with me when Bob seems to leave Leland for a bit, and Leland goes into Laura's room, broken and apologetic. Uh, it's it's one of those scenes at night where um you know that that scene he's different enough that even Laura can seem to tell that this is her actual father. Um, so does does Leland see all the bad things as like these strange dreams that he doesn't want to completely acknowledge? Kind of like how Bill Hastings, you know, sure he works with kids, he has a side thing with a librarian, uh, you know, they they have a fun hobby together, but um. You know, then they're enlisted by the major and they're caught up in this danger. But, you know, he loses time. He doesn't realize that, you know, it took a whole bunch of time between when he uh, dropped Ruth off, quote unquote, and uh, got back home to his house. And, you know, it's just a dream, right? You know, Ruth didn't actually die then, right? But she did. So, you know, um, you know, like there's this thing that... um, being inhabited by a spirit can kind of do to a person uh to 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 make your life kind of wonky and dreamlike and um you know leland may or may not have come out during maddie's murder you know when he's uh, like crying and holding her and calling out for laura you know remembering that laura was gone but you know seemingly Bob is the one who actually does assert total control and finishes the job of maddie's murder and that's probably why uh, Leland doesn't mention, you know, they, they had me kill Maddie when he mentions that, uh, Laura and Teresa were killed by him. You know, after all that, after Harry asks, you know, like, so where is Bob now? We actually see an owl at the episode end as if that's a direct answer to where is Bob now? So, um, yeah, Bob is definitely a genuine character, um, in Twin Peaks. That said, you know, could it all be Leland? You know, Laura doesn't say in in that uh, roadhouse scene, you know, Bob killed me. She says, my father killed me. And, you know, the, the Log Lady intro from episode 14 said something about, you know, the dream of the suffering and pain, pain of the victim, pain of the inflictor of pain. So, you know, the the Bob doesn't seem to have pain. He... um seems to funnel that off onto Leland or Leland is the only one who can absorb that kind of thing. So, you know, pain for the inflictor, um, points to Leland being there. And then of course, you know, Mark Frost, the guy who wrote this episode that seems to blame everything on Bob, uh, (laughs) you know, the, the one who, um, you know, plants the, the murder squarely on supernatural forces rather than human evil. This is what he had to say in Essential Wrapped in Plastic, which was um, an interview fairly close to uh, the release of Fire Walk With Me, if I'm not mistaken. Um, He said, her father killed her. I think Leland was culpable. Ultimately, the human person has to take responsibility, and Bob may have just been a figment of his imagination. And, you know, we, we've also, <laughs> let's, let's not forget another re- guy really close to the situation. We've got Ray Wise again from uh, Twin Peaks Unwrapped book. Uh, he says about the sprinkler scene, it was redeeming for me as a human being, not only as an actor, and it made it all right. I never had Bob in my mind. It was always Leland. It was always Leland. 
And when that old switch went off and he became something else, it was him. And whether it was another part of his brain kicking in or whatever you want to call it, I did not even... I, I did not ever think about Bob and the end of the last episode where I die, I become aware of everything that I've done as Bob. What a big surprise it was for Leland. And, you know, we've got some other ideas where, you know, it's like, you know, how, why would Bob allow humans to manhandle him into handcuffs? You know, because he doesn't have super strength. He's only as powerful as Leland. I mean, that, that kind of matches up. Um, and, you know, when when he gives himself a head injury on the interrogation room floor, um, you know, he changes back into Leland. But, you know, so do more mundane characters with head injuries. You know, Nadine has a head injury in episode 29 that has nothing to do with Bob. And she won't be able to remember her immediate events like relationships with Mike Nelson. But, you know, she's coming out from whatever delusion she allowed. And, um, you know, is that the same kind of state that Leland's in here? You know, he doesn't seem to remember killing Maddie, uh, only what came before, you know, he only the stuff before he delusionally became full on Bob in episode 14. And, you know, could it be Laura who, uh, gave Bob his, his, um, his, um, shape. You know, the, that early diary entry where she writes about a dirty bearded man, essentially, who um, who holds his arms up and he controls the wind. And, um, you know, it's like the image of Bob tends to um, take that shape um, as as the diary goes on. Um, is is it because Laura is the one that she's the dreamer, that she's a strong sender? Is that why we get the physical representation rather than it being, you know, a character within Leland? You know, is it all Leland? And, you know, the, the shape, you know, the, the clothes that it wears just comes from Laura. And, you know, um, Leland actually takes responsibility here, too. Um, you know, while he's on, on a, uh, while he's on the floor of the interrogation room in a pool of his own blood, he says, Oh God, Laura, I killed her. Oh my God. I killed my daughter. I didn't know. Laura, forgive me. Forgive me. Oh God. And you know, he, um, he may be a victim bullied into things, but he is a participant, you know, uh, the, maybe he's just batshit crazy. Uh, you know, that, that, can be a thing but you know there are forces in play but he knows about them and you know he says i was just a boy i saw him in my dreams he said he wanted to play you know so so far that kind of matches the diary with how um how he came into laura's life you know and he goes on to say you know it's like he opened me and i invited him and he came inside me, you know, sure, there's uh, sexual undertones noted for, you know, sexual abuse being part of that. Um, but, you know, then he says, when he was inside, I didn't know. And when he was gone, I couldn't remember, which kind of matches up with that that uh, stuff I was bringing in about Bill Hastings. Um, and then he says, he made me do things, terrible things. So he's actually taking responsibility here for... Um, at least his part in this whole thing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I tend to come down that, you know, this isn't just a delusion of Leland, but that Leland actually is partially responsible for how things got where they are. We have people in this town 
that actually also fall into their delusions. I talked about, you know, Nadine dives into her delusions willingly. And, um, you know, she does it without killing people. <laughs> but, you know, that, that might be a Leland thing. Um, but then we also have people like Ed, who, you know, tamps himself down never to think twice again about any kind of dreaming, you know, once it's not working out with him and Norma. So, you know, um, you don't have to be beholden to all these crazy forces out there. And Leland is giving in to his, like, no matter what. And, you know, more comparatively, we have uh, Leland's story matching up exactly with Laura's fight against, you know, a progressively more and more intense gaslighting from Bob. And, you know, she doesn't buy into it. You know, she still believes in, like, uh, you know, light and the fact that she has some, um, you know, she refused to believe Bob and, you know, continued to fight against his lies. You know, Leland, he curled up and went willingly every time from everything that I can tell based on, you know, how he is in, in, you know, his present day of Twin Peaks. You know, what he says about Bob, you know, today is, um, he said he wanted lives, he wanted others, you know, a nod to possibly being in control of Earl as well as Leland, maybe. I don't know. But, um, you know, Bob wanted more people that he could use, you know, um, you know, others he could use like he used me, said Leland. And um, Cooper said, like Laura, you know, so Cooper makes the connection even within this scene. So, you know. Um, we've got Leland saying they wanted her. So, you know, first question, they, <laughs> you know, who is they? Because that's a huge red flag to me that, you know, Bob isn't the only one here. Um, you know, Bob provides a function with the Lodge Space Denizens, but he is not, you know, necessarily just working alone. They wanted Laura, but she was strong. She wouldn't let him. You know, she wouldn't let him in. And then, you know, he's like, oh, God, they had me kill that girl, Teresa. And they they said if I didn't give them Laura, they'd have me kill her, too. So they want Leland to help participate in the gaslighting. And, you know, he is supposed to provide them uh, Laura, which means that, you know, he has a choice based on that language. And, you know, maybe he doesn't recognize that he has a choice, but just because they want something doesn't mean he has to give it to them. And, you know, Cooper says, but she wouldn't let them in like Leland let them in. Um, Leland said she, uh, she said she'd die before she'd let him. And they made me kill her. Oh, God have mercy. What have I done? What have I done? So, you know, he saying it twice in a row kind of understands that I have done this, I being Leland. And then, you know, he says, I love her, uh, you know, so love, uh, you know, love versus fear. Um, I loved her with all my heart. And, you know, I have to say your whole filled fractured heart. And then, you know, he says, my angel, forgive me. And, you know, then he goes into this ragged breathing and Laura does seem to forgive him here. As Leland dies the and the metaphysical storm ends, you know, the water shuts off, it does seem like she's acknowledging that, you know, it's like he's finally able to see what he did. And, you know, she can understand that he's a victim, too. But at least he accepted responsibility for the part that he played in this. 
And, you know, even when Bob is absolutely in charge, he still needs Leland to be willing to participate. That's what I got out of everything that he just said. Because, I mean, it sure seems like that, you know, Bob... I mean, Bob is beholden to Leland's proclivities in a lot of ways. You know, Mills from Damn Fine TV, she was talking about the gum chewing in this episode. And she says, Bob is chewing a piece of gum, or, uh, and um, but he doesn't have any gum. And, you know, he's chewing it like he's never chewed a piece of gum in his life. And she said, it, you know, like as if Bob were saying this, you know, it's like, what are you putting in my mouth right now? I don't even know what to make of this motion, you know, like... um you know, I, I, I don't even know how to make the motion of it. You know, that, that scene with the chewing gum. I know, I know what Mel's is saying here that, you know, like Leland is kind of in charge of the chewing of the gum. Um, but it ends up also connecting the two worlds at the same point in physical space. So, you know, it's like, is, um, does Bob need Leland in order to do all the physical harm that he's trying to do to, you know, things like Maddie? Yes. You know, both identities are together as one. And, um, you know, it's like they're they're sharing a similar point in physical space. But, you know, it's it's really similar also to that scene in Fire Walk With Me where, you know, Laura is just about ready to get killed. And, um, you know, Bob comes in and, you know, it's like, I thought you or I mean, Leland comes in and I thought you knew it was me. And then, um, you know, Bob comes in and says, I didn't know you knew it was me. But both are you know both both are speaking as if they're participating in the conversation together um you know and and leland may forget or be you know be made to forget but um you know maybe maybe he thinks it is just like a a dream you know kind of like bill hastings but um he is still participating in it even if he thinks that it's this dream that he can't control and you know even if they're not like physically connected to the same space and time um you know, the, the uh, an observation from, you know, Christian, who was the newbie on uh, Manners and Madness, you know, he, he basically comes down to it like this. He says, both of these things happen. Both are responsible. Two things are happening at once, and the dualities are both true. And, you know, I mean, it. he, he just intuitively understands this, but, you know, it's like both planes of reality do seem to be happening, and both of them are valid. And, um, you know, it, it's like how there's the two Tremont houses. It's like how, uh, you know, uh, the Bob dimension is happening with the Leland scenes. You know, it's like there, there's just this coexisting. And yeah, maybe Bob was mostly in charge for Maddie's murder. But, you know, Leland even seemed to surface there, you know, crying about Laura. And, um, you know, Bob wasn't looking for that to happen. Leland came through. So, yeah, Bob doesn't supersede anything in full. Uh, you know, he uses the personality of the vehicle, amplifying the the features and the inclinations, but he never totally supersedes the person. You know, it's like we see it because he he doesn't dance at all in season three. That's a Leland thing. And, um, you know, that, that fingernail letters thing, you know, it's like maybe that's Leland actually trying to provide a clue to stop Bob. It's like, you never know. Maybe he actually is kind of fighting through all that, even though it seems kind of like Bob is doing it because... He doesn't do any of that in season three with Doppelcooper. He starts shooting people using Cooper's skill as a sharpshooter. You know, when he when he shot that thing in the uh, 
in the um oh my gosh the uh, the the sheriff's station basement you know the shooting range down there you know he shoots like you know two through each eye you know like one through each nostril and you know it's like he, he has really good aim so that's what bob uses in season three is the gun so yeah he needs willingness he needs cooperation and um i mean honestly why does he really need the cooperation um i mean it could be as simple as what Philip Gerard's Mike said in um, episode 13, you know, Bob is a familiar. We've got um, Nikki Foster giving a definition of a familiar at wisegeek.com. She said, in legend, a familiar is a supernatural being that helps and supports a witch or magician. And, you know, magician really sticks out to me uh, as they long to see in this mythology. Uh, She goes on to say, traditionally, it is an animal, like, oh, maybe an owl, Uh, but some are said to be humanoid, like Bob. Um, Familiars often have special powers of their own, like Bob, you know, the the way it focuses all around appetite, I would say, is related. Um, And she says, when witchcraft is portrayed as a type of communication like what happens maybe between a giant and a cooper, or an alliance with an evil force in order to gain magical powers, kind of like what I see happening in the future with Wyndham Earl and the Black Lodge uh, drawing Cooper inside via Annie. And yeah, I interrupted her sentence again there. So when witchcraft is portrayed as a type of communication or alliance with evil forces in order to gain magical powers, This being may be considered a type of demon, which, you know, Bob also is considered. So, yeah, familiars need an alliance with their host. And, you know, maybe maybe the familiar gets power from the host, you know, like when the host agrees to cede that power to the familiar in this case, Uh, you know, which makes Leland a participant actively, Um, you know, however memory wiped and abused. that he's been through this whole process. I think probably the person who said it the best that I've heard is uh, Rosie over on the Diane podcast. You know, she talks about, um, she says, Bob says Leland has a large hole where his conscience used to be. And that doesn't really make sense as the thing to say, if Leland's personality was not present in the body where, uh, where he was committing these terrible acts. The problem is not a lack of Leland in the body. It's the hole where his conscience used to be. And then she uh, goes, I'm going to paraphrase, you know, she talks about when uh, Bob pulls the ripcord, uh, we see that hole get filled. And, um, you know, the the rush of empathy, uh, et cetera, that, you know, filled the roadhouse in episode 13 when everybody got really sad is the same thing that rushes into Leland that we see here. you know, she goes on talking about how, you know, I mean, she brings up, um, you know, Jesus on the cross saying they know not what they do. And, um, you know, it's like physically speaking, all those people knew what they were doing to uh, Jesus at the time. But, you know, there's the total lack of empathy that keeps them from understanding the full extent of what they're doing. And um, she likens that to what Leland is doing here, that, you know, he finally understood, you know, like the you know, it's it's the same thing wrong with Leland in his soul. You know, um, 
Rosie said, over time, Bob became a part of Leland's soul, and Leland needs to bear responsibility for that, even when we and Cooper can still have compassion for Leland uh, when he's confronted with that understanding. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't say it better than Rosie did, like just simply speaking, you know, it's like, what is the evil the men do? It's, um, it's letting a demon reside in your soul and allowing your empathy to disappear and, um, you know, letting the evil run rampant without caring what you're doing and without understanding what you're doing. It's letting appetite get out of balance that much. So, I mean, that, as far as I can tell, pretty much explains how I feel about this whole uh, dichotomy between Leland and Bob. And, um, you know, it's like we don't really see Bob a lot until episode 27 when he pops out again um, in in the circle of uh, sycamores at, you know, the tail end of... Um, you know, like when he sticks his arm out. Uh, and then, you know, we see him a lot more in episode 29, obviously, when Lynch comes back. But, um, you know, where else can the supernatural go from here between then and now? Well, I mean, this story, I mean, a lot of people say that, you know, it's like, oh, well, the Twin Peaks story really ended right here. And, you know, from from here on forward, it's this totally different thing. But, um but the story isn't over now, you know, it's like the real, the, the, the magical realism, the, um, the effect of lodge space is kind of all over the place. And I kind of, I kind of liken it to the fact that, you know, now the Bob is out, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, the, the bottle is uncorked and, you know, everything's just getting everywhere and it's just pouring out like a fire hose over the whole town. And it's making everybody's wants, um, you know, fairly out of control. And, you know, I, I've, I kind of hinted at it about, you know, Nadine's upcoming high school thing and uh, Ben's upcoming uh, Civil War generalhood. You know, it's like the, things like that will, um, you know, a appetite is out of control and we get to see a lot of how that manifests in more mundane ways um, when, you know, it's not homicidal in nature. You know, I mean, it's everywhere, even even including, you know, Lana's extreme pheromones and uh, Leland trying to also find a way to redemption um, after he wakes up from his coma. Um, you know, even 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 little Nikki and James, you know, the 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 stereotypically noir excursion that he takes, it's all kind of imbued with a certain amount of delusion. And, um, you know, I, I think. I think that um, there's there's going to be more meat on this uh, on the bone of this you know this middle part of season two where um, you know it you know it's, people traditionally think it dips. So um, yeah, sure, we're not fighting against Bob, but you know the magic is around, and um, it's it's going to be interesting to see how the reality of Twin Peaks. Um, kind of fights against this dream kind of trying to force itself on the physical reality of Twin Peaks. That said, before we dig into episode 17, which kind of operates as an epilogue to this whole thing, at least in the first act, um, I'm going to take an excursion and um, have a, a field report from Agent L to talk about. And uh, 
uh, she and I are going to actually have a conversation again about, um, you know, the, the general this and that's of, um, of this whole uh, who killed Laura Palmer story arc. And it's going to come at it from more of a psychological point of view. You know, it's like, we'll talk, uh, it, it'll probably have, you know, cinematic connections to talk about, but um, I've, uh, I've had a preview of this conversation and it's going to be a good one. So, um, you know, definitely hang in there with us and, uh, you know, take a trip with us into a, uh, a little, uh, you know, a, a side quest, if you will. <laughs> and, um, yeah, until until we get to there in a couple of weeks, um, all that we have left is the sign off. So you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate and review our show. You know, give a couple of reviews over on uh, Apple podcast and you know, Spotify, wherever you can put in a review. We would totally appreciate it. Uh, you know, getting getting a little bit more notice out of that. And, um, you know, we would love to connect with you also on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. Uh, you can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on Instagram. You can visit Ruminations Radio Network for additional great shows such as Cinephile Hissy Fit and Ruminations from the Red Room. And join us, uh, join all of us hosts, including me, at the Ruminations Radio Network uh, on our Discord channel, which is Ruminations Radio Cafe. You can find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and, you know, content from many other TV shows over at tvobsessive.com and uh, 25 years later site.com. And if you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, which will be happening soon, I promise. I know I keep talking about it, but uh, we really will have that coming up. Uh, you know, send any comments, questions, or feedback to blue rose task force podcast at gmail.com or you know contact me with any of it at uh, any of our social networks so uh yeah we'll see you next week with the uh, ells field report with me and uh yeah until then listeners i will see you in my dream Expand, deepen the universe that the show takes place in. The show takes place in.